Corinthians chapter 10 today, verse uh, 14. And uh, let's go ahead and pray before we get into the word. Lord, know that this is your word for us today, uh, that you've just sovereignly worked out these individuals to be here, to hear this, God. There's been much prayer over this morning that you would give us hearts to um, apply your word more than just ears to hear it, God. Just pray that you would take the scriptures from uh, our head down to our heart, God. Uh, Lord, there's just a strong word for us today that, uh, that we need to hear as 2013 Americans. And so we pray that you would just um, do a work of your spirit in transforming us, Lord. Do that work of setting us apart from this sinful world that's passing away and setting us towards just the, the kingdom that is eternal, Lord. Uh, we love you. We worship you as we study the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in uh, chapter 10, verse 14, and uh, it says in a very short, concise sentence, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, Wednesday nights uh, this year, we're taking a, a break away from just uh, every week Bible study and we're having what's called the Equip School of Ministry, kind of a mini, mini Bible college for the leaders in this church and the up-and-coming leaders, uh, where we're equipping them in, in the sound doctrine, foundational things of the faith. Uh, and so we've spent the last three weeks looking at the scriptures, where the Bible came from, why we have the books that we have in it, uh, and what that means for us, the implications of that. And, and our conclusion is that uh, the, the scriptures have been breathed out by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, and holy men wrote as they were moved along to write by the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's, it's without error. In fact, it's incapable of error. And so uh, because of that, it is the authority of everything we do as a church and, and the way we live as individuals. And, uh, and so uh, moving along with that understanding of the scripture, last week we started a two-week class of how to study the Bible and prepare to teach it. So you might just be seeing a lot more than just me teaching up here, which would, which would be great, right? Uh, Shannon, shush, okay. And, uh, but one thing we learned is that uh, when you're studying the Bible, you want to pay special attention to the context of how it's written, not only in the culture and the history and the politics that it was written in, uh, but also the grammatical uh, stuff. For those of you that are like in English majors and stuff, uh, you want to follow rules of literature and things like that. And one rule is uh, when you come to a verse that starts out with therefore, uh, you don't just plow and keep going, you want to say, this is a continuation of a thought, isn't it? Uh, it's like, because of this, beloved, flee from idols. Because of what? And so you go back to find the beginning of the thought, which actually goes back a couple chapters, but you can get the gist of it just at the beginning of chapter 10, which is what we studied last week. Uh, the context uh, is of the Corinthians' carnality. That means that they are a group that just lives according to their flesh, according to what sounds good, what feels good, what they want to do, what in the moment seems like, hey, this is going to be best for me here and now, going to feel good, let's do that. Uh, that's a life that is ruled by the flesh, and it's sinful and, and, and wrong and idolatry um, at its core, at its heart. But the Corinthians were that carnal group that had the idolatry and the idols that they worshipped of their knowledge and of their rights, things that they had the right to do. And so Paul gave them at the beginning of chapter 10 a history lesson of Israel in order to instruct them not to practice things that would disqualify them from the Christian race. Uh, as the Israelites in their history lusted after evil things, they bowed the knee to false gods, a.k.a. idols. They tested God and complained in the wilderness and were destroyed by the destroyer and they were destroyed by serpents. This is all what you just read in the chapter we're in right now. Uh, and so they were destroyed because of their sin and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness or heaped up in piles. In fact, if you remember verse 5, it says, but with most of these people, 
God was not well pleased. Out of the million or so Israelites that came out of Egypt, uh, only two of them went into the promised land. So most of them, God was not well pleased because they tested, because they sinned against him, because they bowed the knee to idols. That's a bit of the context here. And so God has given us a way to escape in those moments of testing and temptation. Verse 12 tells us, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you were a guy that was like an Israelite that had all of these privileges and rights and you just had this resume chock full of incredible spiritual things and you just think you're good with God because you got this background, hey, don't let that fool you. If you're worshiping idols, if you're testing God, if you're complaining, if you're committing sexual immorality, if you're lusting after evil things, don't be fooled. You're going to be falling in the wilderness just like the Israelites were. Take heed lest you fall. But then verse 13 gives us an encouragement. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, we know there's two things happening in God's sovereignty as we're going through this Christian life. One thing is the devil is at our heels trying to kill us and steal us and destroy us. He is tempting us. He's tempting our flesh every day. At the same time, God sovereignly is testing us. James tells us God in no way is the one that tempts us. We're tempted when we're drawn away by our wicked desires and we want to do those evil things. But the Lord tests us in order to make us stronger and stronger and stronger. It's different than temptation. And there's a promise for us that when God is testing us, look around, keep your eyes open because there is a way of escape. There's a way of escape. Is anybody this week, you remember this scripture and you were just like, I'm in the thick of it. I'm tempted. Lord, where's, where's the way of escape? Where's the way of escape? Be looking. It's an awesome promise. It's an awesome encouragement to us so that we don't fall in the wilderness like the Israelites. Now, that's all great and good, and you think that he'd go on writing about encouraging and awesome things. No, he again warns us in verse 14. Because of all of that stuff, because the Israelites fell in the wilderness and were disqualified because that list of evil things they did, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The Corinthian church was a group of people who lived in what was kind of like a Las Vegas of its day. I mean, there were temples to all kinds of different gods. The two main ones in Corinth were uh, idols given over to sexual immorality. And so within the community, there were thousands and thousands of pagan temple prostitutes, both male and female, who would give themselves in sexual acts in worship of these false gods. And many of the Corinthian Christians were saved out of that. And as time would go on, they'd miss their old buddies and they'd miss those old things that they participated in. And so they'd be invited back to a pagan church potluck, if you could imagine what that would be like. They'd be invited back to partake and to be a part of it. Some of them going deeper and deeper into the temple during this potluck and remembering these past things. Some of them participating in certain ways. Okay. And so Paul is going to say, hey, 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 hey. You guys, with your rights and your freedoms that you have in Christ, you're pushing the boundaries. You're going a bit too far. Watch out for yourself. And that's the case with our Christian freedoms. You see that with the two weeks that Chad Carpenter, one of our elders, taught, where he spoke about rights and our freedoms in Christ and how we can, we can sin by making an idol out of our rights and our freedoms. We can also compromise with our rights and our freedoms and go too far with them. Uh, on the other end of the pendulum, as the pendulum swings, we can become very legalistic concerning Christian le- uh, liberties and Christian freedoms. And so Jay, uh, Paul wants to speak to us today and say, hey, you can't have it both ways. You can't live for Jesus and also be going in and partaking of idolatrous practices. James puts it another way when he's talking about our speech and the way we talk as Christians. He says, uh, out of your mouth comes blessings, but also comes cursings. And he goes on to say, brothers, that should not be happening. And he says, does a freshwater stream, or excuse me, does a stream that's bubbling up out of the ground, does it have fresh water and also bitter poisonous water coming out of it? Uh Uh-uh. 
can't happen. You can't have good and bad water coming up out of the same spring. He says it's the same way with your mouth as a Christian. You can't have it both ways. And so he says, in light of all of that history lesson, of all the Israelites' warnings towards us from chapter 10, beloved, flee from idolatry. And I just think it's cool that Paul here, he calls them beloved. Because if you've been here with us from chapter 1 and you've been working through 1 Corinthians, this is a hard group of people to minister to. This is a group of people that's very carnal. And so with that comes, they're fighting with each other. They're suing each other. They're allowing sexual immorality of the gross, worst, heinous kind to come into the church. And they're proud that they're allowing that to come in. They're fighting over which pastor's the best. And we're a part of this pastor. Well, you're a loser because we're a part of this pastor. This is what's going on here. All right. They're using their freedoms and they're sinning against each other and against the Lord in their freedoms. It goes on and on and on. And they're puffed up thinking that we know everything and we're so smart and great. Man, if I was writing this, I'd be, listen here, you dirtbags. <laughs> Flee from idolatry. That's not what he says. What a good example, huh? Yeah, Rory, learn. Okay. Shannon. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> love, hate, love, hate. Listen here. Beloved. Beloved. I love that word because it means my only one, my very dear. If you're NIV reader here today, Dear friends, dear friends, flee from idolatry. I like how John, the apostle, he, he's kind of like a tender guy. Have you ever noticed that? He, when he writes his gospel, he says, like, I'm the one that Jesus loved. You know, he's like, there was one that was leaning against Jesus's bosom at the Last Supper. That was me. You know, we're, we're buds, just tender, right? And in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he says, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Paul, beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. You go back uh, four chapters to chapter six in 1 Corinthians. He says, flee from sexual immorality. It speaks of a strong, hard to pin down action where you're out of there and nothing could keep you there. You're not gonna stumble in a sexual way. And you know what? You're not gonna stumble in an idolatrous way. Beloved, flee. Or as John puts it, little children, keep yourselves away from them. Keep yourselves away from them. Escape, disappear, avoid these idols. Become invisible to them. Now you might be thinking, Rory, come on, bro. It's 2013. Idols, really? Are we going to spend like 45 minutes to an hour <laughs> talking about idols? I mean, that's so like 3,000 years ago, right? Not so. Not so. It is very 2013 Prineville, Crook County, Central Oregon, <laughs> West Coast, America, all right? Idolatry is very relevant today. Worshiping something other than the true living God is idolatry. Now, in verse 7, verse 14, verse 19, verse 28, we see that the pagan sacrifices to idols in, in Corinth was a very real issue. It was day-to-day -day relevant issue. But idolatry wasn't just theoretical. It was practical day-to-day -day lifestyle. And it's the same for us today, although the sacrifices and the idols have changed. Uh, I remember speaking with someone just dear to our family uh, and he said, you know what? I've been a Christian for a really long time. And I'm just going to tell you, uh, I don't worship other gods. I don't worship these things. Like people don't do that. Uh, you know, and it's because in our minds, we're thinking, man, you got to go into some sort of temple, right? You got to go into some sort of temple and there's got to be some weird thing made out of gold. That's all up in front. And you got to go and like bow down and light something on fire or something like that. That's what worship is. It's not true. It's not true. May the Lord correct your mind today of what worship and idolatry is. We seem to be equally idolatrous to the Corinthian church with our false gods, with the things that we elevate above Christ, above his word, above his standard to us. For some of us here, even our own thoughts are an idol against God. Recently had someone who claims to be a Christian tell me they have nothing to do with the word of God. They're going to follow God their way. And they're a Christian, right? All right. So what does that tell me? That tells me they have elevated themselves above God and his revelation of himself to us in the scriptures. And they're essentially worshiping themselves and their 
thoughts, all right? So our thoughts can be an idol. Our sports can be an idol. Our recreation, our positions in society, or even within the church can be an idol. Our philosophies, our consumeristic uh, practices, that we're constantly looking to buy something, that that will give us comfort, that will give us joy. We base our lives on these things, and they raise up so quickly and become gods with a little g to us. And in Deuteronomy, when God gives us the Ten Commandments, he doesn't just go, boom, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, ten times. That's not what he does. He begins by saying, guys, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Does anybody know what we call that in our Bible study? Remember family camp when we talked about it up at Prineville Reservoir? That's a redemptive indicative. What does that mean? It means God's showing us that he loves us and he's redeemed us. Guys, I brought you out of Egypt where you were slaves. I'm your God. And because I've been so good and gracious and merciful to you, now do stuff for me. But do it in response to who I am to you. Do it in response to what I've already done for you. So, therefore, thou shalt not have any other God before me. And thou shalt not carve and make any graven image that you would bow down to it and worship it because God has taken you out of Egypt to make you a special people of his. You know, in uh, Job chapter 31, Job says, if I have made gold my hope or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand has gained much, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be a sin deserving of judgment for I have denied God who is above. So don't think idol worship is just going into some pagan temple. And like actually saying, dear Joseph Smith or whatever, okay? Idolatry is, man, this gold that I've acquired, this cashola, these greenbacks, all right? Man, I just, yeah, you are my confidence, money, 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 all right? Or look at nature out here. I'm just one with nature. Nature's speaking to me. And, and you regard it and you, it says, touch your hand to your mouth like you're paying homage to it. Maybe NIV, I think it does say, so that you pay homage to it. You've elevated this thing to a place of God and you're deserving of judgment. Man, just me as Rory, the devil is always trying to tempt me to put my confidence and my hope and my comfort and my life and all that I am in items that are in my pocket items that are in my bank or my vacation that I've got to get to this place. It means more to me to be at this place than you even know. Every, every year or a couple times a year, I've got to do this. And I just, I can't function if I don't go to Hawaii every year, if I don't do this or that. Even vacation can become a God. In Galatians chapter five, when Paul lists out what the works of the flesh are, remember the Corinthians were fleshly carnal Christians, some of the lists of the works of the flesh beyond, idolat- or beyond adultery and fornication and this and that, it says idolatry. And then right after idolatry is sorcery. All right, sorcery. Interesting, we're gonna get into why those things should be back to back as we go through 1 Corinthians 10 today. How you guys doing? Woo, I love talking about idols. Yeah, might be my idol. Oh, okay, thank you. Verse 15. First, Paul tells us to think, okay? So I'm going to tell you to do the same thing. Think today, all right? Now, a lot of places, you might go to church and they're like, hey, check your brain at the door. Don't use this thing that God's given you and just believe everything that I tell you. Don't do that, okay? Test everything with the scriptures. Acts chapter 17, 11, there was a group of Bereans. They were well-minded people, uh, high-minded people, and they would test everything that was said with the Bible to see if it was so. And I invite you to do the same thing today. So think, and he says this in verse 15. I speak to you as to wise men, judge for yourself what I say. So think for yourselves of what I'm saying. Examine what's being said. Now he's being a little bit uh, facetious here because the Corinthians really prided themselves that we are just so knowledgeable. We are just philosophers. We know everything. So Paul's essentially saying, if you're really so smart, then start thinking, okay? I'm gonna lay something out for you. 
I'm going to lay a beat down. Judge for yourself what I say. Weigh the forces of this argument and logic with these questions. Verse 16, first question. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Okay, Paul didn't just get bored of talking about idols and now thinks he's going to teach a sermon on communion, okay? The context is all idolatry here, all right? And, and what we have is the Corinthians saw taking communion, eating the bread and drinking the cup as a sort of a cup as sort of a sacramental uh, antidote to any ill effects that might come from going into the idol temples all week long and being involved in all that paganism during the week. There was this poison of idolatry out there, and so the Corinthians had this overestimated view of the Lord's table and that they thought it was some sort of an immunization against the junk that they allowed to be washed over them and for them to be a part of during the week. So they'd come to the Lord's table and they'd think it was some sort of like hand sanitizer that they just... Okay, now I have this attitude on Sunday and here's my attitude and I do take the bread and I take the cup and glory hallelujah and then Sunday afternoon if we're real we go out and we're a part of the paganism of this world and we bow the knee to all these gods and we have a whole different mindset Monday through Saturday so that we can come back and Lord's table kind of wash ourselves clean they have this overestimated view and an unhealthy view of what communion is those stupid Corinthians right no, hopefully you're thinking, this is frighteningly close to how I have lived or am living and how I know the American church is living today and how they view the Lord's Supper today as some sort of immunization, as a grace dispenser or a sacramental antidote against all forms of worldly idolatry. It's a wrong view of this cup of blessing, of the, of the bread, and Paul calls it the cup of blessing because in the Passover feast, it's the last cup that you would drink. And Jesus took that last cup on the, on the night when he broke bread and instituted communion. He took that last cup and he blessed it. And he took the bread and he broke it. We do these things in remembrance of me, Paul says one chapter later in 1 Corinthians. And so talking about idolatry and talking about communion, two of your favorite subjects, I hope, as we talk on communion, it was Scott that during worship came over. He's like, hey, common union. And it was like, booyah, you got it, buddy. What Paul is trying to say here is when we take communion, we are having a union with Jesus. We are having a very, very special and serious union with Jesus. Now, communion means fellowship, and it means to share, okay? And it means union, or common union, okay? Uh, a lot of us don't think of it as that, do we? We think of communion as that thing I've always done on Sundays at church, and it has grape juice and crackers, and it's kind of a snack, and it's a nice break from that guy's talking, talking, talking. Let's finally have a little snack time here. If that's your view of communion, it's way off, way wrong, and I'd love to instruct you. In fact, we're going to get into it in the weeks to come. But at its heart, communion, coming to the table, is unity with Christ. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, union lies at the base of communion. Union lies at the base of communion. If you read the ESV version, it says we participate in the cup and we participate in the bread. There's something very deep that's going on. It's more than a symbol. Okay, now yes, the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ and reminds us of the body. And yes, the blood actually represents, the, or the, the cup represents the blood of Jesus. And yes, the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy has gotten into all kinds of, of sorceristic ideas where it, the priest actually makes it actually Jesus again and again and again, where he slaughters Jesus, slaughters Jesus, slaughters Jesus all over the world a billion different times. Jesus has been killed a billion different times. All right, so they've gotten away from theology, from the word of God, and gotten into superstition. That's what happened there. 
Now, while it is symbolic and not really Jesus slaughtered on the table over there, it's symbolic, it's more than symbolic, okay? It's more than symbolism. It's more than just an action that we do. It's more than just external. So much so that if you are not a Christian and you would come and partake of the table today, 1 Corinthians 11 says that you're drinking judgment upon yourself. God is going to judge you more and more severe because you won't receive him. You don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, but you'll fake it and you'll drink this thing that is so precious and represents the precious blood of the son of God that was shed so that you wouldn't go to hell, but you would be forgiven of your sins. It is more than just an action that we're doing. It is very spiritual. It unites us together with Christ in a similar way to how marriage makes two people one, okay? Two become one flesh. When we come to the table and we remember Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, we say things in our heart, like the lyric to the hymn uh, that says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this wondrous thought, my sin, not the part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, praise the Lord. That's a heart that comes to the table knowing my sin, Jesus, because of the cross, because of your blood and your body being torn up and ripped apart and beaten and shredded and blood dripped and spilled all over the ground, it should have been my blood and it still wouldn't have been sufficient, but it was your blood and it is sufficient. And I come in to union with you in a way that is so deep and so real and so true that everything that your cross and your life represented It's in me now. It's in me. Can't get any closer. Can't get any deeper. The Lord's Supper, as we take it with that heart, doesn't give us license to go out and sin now, but rather strikes us with the depth of love that God has provided for us so that we no longer want to sin anymore. I don't want to partake of those things anymore. I don't want to bow my knee to that idol anymore. Because of Jesus, I want to stay away from it. Verse 17 goes on to say, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So just pause real quick. Speaks of one loaf, maybe your version says, how in the early church it seems that communion practice was to have one loaf, and you would break off a piece and hand it around, pass it around. So everybody that partook, though there's many of us, we're uni- there's unity there, okay? We're eating from the same loaf. And so though we're many members of a body, we're still one body. Got a little ambitious at about 10.30 last night as I was studying, and I started looking up YouTube recipes for communion loaves and almost did it, but uh, you're gonna go in over your head on this one, Rory. So, so today we've got the little crackers, right? But they're in one dish. They're from the same batch, if you will. And so as we take of that, we're realizing, man, we're all, there's unity here. Though we're many, we're one together. There's a wholeness about it. Due to superstition, the Roman Catholics made it sinful to touch it. Leaving theology out, superstition came in and the priest would place the bread in the mouth of the mouth and the mouse, if he was a Christian mouse. And so they would, they would not, they'd, oh, I can't touch it, I can't touch it. But no, we can touch it. We can be a united part of it. Taking communion isn't about the church that you were baptized into, and it's not part of being a ceremony. It's taking part in Christ and what he's done. Verse 18, we're challenged to think again. Think about Israel. Verse 18, stick with me, guys. This is like deep stuff, I know, but you can do it. You can do it. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So we go back to the Old Testament and all the sacrifices that would take place. And the priests, they would get to have their certain amount of the sacrifice and they would get to eat it and partake of it. Reading with my son yesterday, he's learning how to read. He's reading 1 Samuel together with me at the table. And we read about Hophni and, or, uh, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, right? And the wicked sons of um, Eli. And they would take their flesh hook and dip it down in there and just pull up whatever they could. And they were allowed to do that. One time down, boop, boop. That's what you get to have as your portion to provide for your family. 
Then you might think of the Passover sacrifice and how the family would slaughter the animal and they would, they would divide it up just right. All the parts that needed to be um, done away with and, and burnt just the way it was supposed to be burnt, you would go burn that outside the, the gate. Uh, the part that you would eat, you would eat together as a family. And in the Passover ceremony, they were participating in that feast. Israel would do that. They would participate with the sacrifice There was a unity going on with that sacrifice. Okay. They were participating at a very deep level. All right. There was a participation with God in the worship of it. And there was a participation with each other. And as they were participating, all right, or partakers of the altar, as verse 18 says, so are we when we come to the altar, to the communion table. We share in the body and the blood of Jesus by sharing in the benefits that they bought. See, for them to sacrifice the bull or the lamb or the goat or the partridge in the pear tree or whatever it might have been, they would have said, Lord, we are sharing in this. That means we receive the forgiveness of sins, the atonement that this blood provides. Uh, We receive the joy and the fellowship and the restoration of, of relationship with you, God, and with each other. And it's the same thing when we come to the table in 2013. To eat of the bread and drink of the cup is to say, I am a part of everything associated with this sacrifice. I'm a part of it. And as we studied last week, the Romans knew that sacrament meant a loyalty declaration. That's what it means. We are showing our loyalty when we are baptized and when we're taking communion. Verse 19 What am I saying then? Amen? Nothing? Okay. Where's Kenny Box? Do your cricket thing. Okay. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? And the readers are asking, good question, Paul. I'm starting to assume that idolatry, that it's very real stuff because you're talking about communion and how real and how internal it is. It's not merely external. You're talking about communion in such a deep way. So is an idol really like, it's really like a God that, that does stuff for me? Paul knows that that's not the case. And they know Paul doesn't mean that. Similar to a fortune cookie. A fortune cookie is nothing but a tasty mix of flour and sugar. It has a silly little message inside. But if you take it as a prediction of your future, it becomes a form of sorcery. You're predicting your future apart from God's will and his word. The message doesn't somehow corrupt the cookie. I'll still eat the cookie, but I'll have no part with the prediction. Except for the fact that the elders have had their meetings over at Brother's Diner for the last few, six months, seven months. And every morning before church, we get a plate with a fortune cookie on it. So we've determined that that's going to help us make the big decisions for the church when we're trying to make them. Like, what do you think? Crack it open. We have a lot of fun with that. What do you think about core groups this year? Well, it says. I've rebuked Aaron like six times for it. He still wants to do it. Okay. When we allow our hearts to participate in the demonic aspects, we are opening up ourselves to a dangerous realm. We know chapter eight, verse four says that an idol is nothing in this world. It's a block of wood or it's a piece of stone from the quarry. There's no other God but one. But it goes a little deeper than that even. In verse 20 here, Paul says, Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. In Leviticus, when Moses is laying out how the priests are to sacrifice things, he says, okay, you put the blood on the altar, and it's going to be a sweet aroma to the Lord as the fat burns. And it says, and now the priest shall no more offer their sacrifice to demons after whom they'd played the harlot. All right. So now that you're a Christian or now that you're a a priest, you can no longer have it both ways. You can't come to the altar of the Lord and burn the fat and worship him and then come over here and play the harlot. Literally, they were playing the harlot or the Old Testament also refers to idolatry as 
harlotry against God. In Psalm 106, 37, it says, they even sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. So when you go back to Israel's history and you go to the asterisks and you go to the Chamashes, Chamash, I believe it was, who was specifically this bull that Solomon even set up during his reign, a bull with a bowl, okay? Can you follow me there? A bull with a bowl, okay? And they would heat up a fire underneath the bowl and it would sizzle and be hot and people would come and offer their children in the bowl, okay? That was going on in Solomon's day as he turned away and worshiped other gods, all right? Thank God that's not happening today, amen? You're wrong. It's happening today every time a young girl or a young boy decides that their future, their career, their whatever is better than allowing this life to live. And so they go against what God has says and they offer their child on the altar of their God of themselves, their comfort, their pleasure, their status, their career, their future. It's the same exact thing. And listen up, it's demonic. That's what it is. Any kind of idolatry, no matter what it is, is demonic at heart. And that is what Paul is getting at. The things that the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed not to the block of wood. They were sacrificing it to a demon who was doing stuff with that block of wood. He was doing stuff. There was stuff that was going on. There's a reason that people all over the world flock to see these icons and these statues that are weeping. Now, two things are happening. Either a guy's sitting there with a water bucket squirting on the statues to make him cry, or there are demons who are certainly powerful enough and have enough tact to make something like a squirt of water appear on the face of a statue. It's demonic. It goes beyond a block of wood, and it goes beyond a chunk of rock. They have no ability to to think as blocks of wood. They are inanimate objects that we have created, created, that is true. But an idol worship time is demonic because demons are receiving those things that belong to God, namely the heart of the person, as worship to themselves and rob glory from God. And that is what Romans chapter 1 is all about. Demons, under their captain, are destroying and hindering the work of God and the progress of the people of God. And it looks good, people. It looks good. I'm not really tempted to follow after a dude in a giant purple robe with a goat head that he's wearing, doing all sorts of weird stuff. That's not something I'm attracted to. But I might be more attracted to a beautiful brick building out in the country with the finest manicured lawn I've ever seen, perfect bushes. And it says Jesus Christ. It says the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. And these people are clean, and these people are nice, and these people are sincere. But they are sincerely wrong, and they are unaware that the worship that they're worshiping is demonic. It is very demonic. And every cult at its heart is demonic in nature. The Corinthians believed that they were free. They missed the people in those old places. They missed the places and they were free to go there because I have Christian liberty. But Paul says, don't miss the point and don't be stupid. What is happening there is from the pit of hell. Behind the unreality of idols exists the reality of demonic activity. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, put on your armor, get ready to do battle, because the battle is not against a chunk of rock or a stump from a tree. The battle is against principalities and powers in heavenly places. It's demonic. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 19, at the sixth trumpet judgment, in the middle of the tribulation period, there's a group of people who were not killed by the plagues only to have more plagues dumped out upon them because they did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And yet we go even deeper, worshiping gods, not only of silver and gold, but of 
LED, LCD, plasma, things that have discs, things that spin, things that go boom, things that go nay, things that have horns, things that bugle, things that swim. It goes on and on. Things that sow, things that glow. We'll worship them. We'll devote our best to them and our first fruits. And as the people would offer their first child on the bowl of the bowl, we offer our best and our first of our energy, of our time, of our money, of our resources, of our joy, of our energy, not to Jesus, not to furthering his kingdom, not to the things that his word calls us to do, but to things that are external. And as we bow the knee there, we're opening up all kinds, all kinds of roots for the enemy. Judge yourself what I say. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Verse 21 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Do you come to the communion table and worship and remembrance of Jesus and then go from here to another temple? Do you go to your other gods and then go pay them homage? Go pay them tribute? Go put your trust in them? Paul says you cannot have it both ways. They are mutually exclusive. And Jesus says nobody can serve two masters. They're either going to love one and hate the other, or they're going to love the other, and hate the one, and then what does he go on to say that idol is that he's speaking of? It's not Chamash, it's not Ashtoreth, it's not Baal, it's not Allah, it's money. You cannot serve God and money. And yet, it draws, doesn't it? It wants us. We turn our heart to these other gods, to these things that have demonic roots. As Christians, you can see a lot of what each other's gods are by just looking on Facebook these days. I'm grieved when I see Christians that call themselves Christians posting their horoscopes and then discussing the application of those horoscopes for their life. Disgusting (laughs) was a pun that wasn't intended. Demonic. The Old Testament speaks of the abomination of these mediums, of these psychics. Don't go into them. Don't don't go talk to them. Don't put your trust in them. Thank God I don't worship the, the stump or the rock. What about your boyfriend? What about your girlfriend? Especially that of a non believer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, we're told, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Now, this isn't Rory taking his sweet little time to shut the Bible now, and we're going to talk about dating. That's what we're going to talk about. What is Paul's context when he talks about unequally yoked together? Whether it's dating, whether it's marriage, uh, the Phillips translation says, don't link up with unbelievers and try to work with them, Okay. So Paul's not just talking about dating there. He goes on to say, what fellowship or unity has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Sorry, I'm just trying to be very pointed here in our contrasting. What accord has Christ with the demon named Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament there, where God is pleading for us to come out from among this idolatry. So when we're yoking ourselves unequally to a non-believer, it's not just, oh, you know different strokes for different folks. And it's kind of old school to only date and marry a Christian. And no, guess what it is? It's demonic when you're doing it. It's demonic people. I'm not making this up. It's occultic. You're trying to unite Christ with the demon. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Read it. And the minute you say, no, I'm doing what I want to do, not what the word wants to do. Guess what? Another God creeps in yourself. You're doing what you want to do. Not what your creator has, who has creator rights over you, wants you to do. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In Deuteronomy 32, 21, the Lord says, these people have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have foolish idols and have moved me to anger. Now I'm going to provoke them to jealousy. And he prophesies over his loving on the Gentiles. Jealousy can actually be a good thing. 
Its positive usage has to do with in marriage and how a husband can be jealous for the exclusivity of the relationship with his wife. And likewise, the wife to the husband or a mother with her child. There's good type of jealous, not just the green-eyed monster kind. And the Lord is jealous over us. Whenever we turn our heart to an idol of any kind, he's jealous. He's jealous. Are we trying to arouse the wrath of God? Have we forgotten how completely we are in his hands? So there's application for us today to check for compromise in our life. Maybe it's the music that you listen to. And I don't know. Maybe it is. And the Holy Spirit's showing you right now if it is. Or the shows that you watch or the movies that you go to or the business practices that you're involved in. There's application for us today to remember that our participating in communion is significant. There's application for us today to not kid ourselves. These external matters of the movies that we watch and the TV shows that we allow in and the music that we listen to and the way we spend our weekend and the places that we go to get beverages and this and that, it does matter. When you pay homage to idols, you're engaged and flirting with demonic forces. And we don't want to be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Now, in closing up, verses 23 through 33 goes back to addressing their freedoms and their liberties. And I I believe we're going to talk more about this next week. But as you read it, you know that he's, he goes back to encouraging the Corinthians. Don't be selfish in your liberties. Be so sensitive to your brother's conscience. Be so sensitive. Whether that's that we eat meat and we're in a community of vegans, be sensitive to the vegans. Whether that's we have a brew in the midst of alcoholics, be sensitive to those who have convictions in, in, a, in a sensitive or weak, biblically, consciences. We're coming upon Halloween, and there are people that, you know, they go all out to celebrate Halloween, and there's people that, you know what, we don't even say the word. And you know what? Be sensitive to the conscience and the convictions of those around you. Again, on Facebook these days, your stuff just isn't private anymore, people. All right? We see the wine glasses there at the dinner table. We see the beer. We see the smoking. We see the Halloween party that you're at. We see the dress that you're wearing at the Halloween party, okay? All of these things, be sensitive. Be sensitive to the conscience. Be sensitive to what you post. You don't just live for yourself anymore. You live as we see in verse 31, whether we're eating or drinking or celebrating and having a party or uh, whether we're going here, going there. We do all these things for the glory of God, verse 31. Then in verse 33, he says, just, and I don't mean to skip around, just look at 32 and 33. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also pleased all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So in verse 23, we see Paul gauges his liberties on is it helpful and is it profitable? Does it edify? Okay. In uh, verse 31, we see Paul gauges his liberties to, is he glorifying God with them? And then in verse 33, he judges his liberties and how he's going to use them, is he going to save people with them? And so we come and the worship team come on up. We do have ahead of us this week uh, what seems to be a national holiday called Halloween, all right? And if you do the study... It has a lot at its foundation of occultic practices. And even today, there are many people that use this night as a night to worship Satan and all of that stuff. Okay? And so this is where we get into one of those Christian liberties. And as we participate, are we participating in a way that is going to build us up and edify us in the things of Jesus? As we participate, are we going to bring glory to God? We're riding a bike ride with Russell yesterday, and it's just cool to see your kid love the Lord and like knowing the Bible, right? And he's like, am I kicking that, buddy? Thanks. <laughs> We're riding along, and there's like this really creepy like Halloween decoration stuff, and he's like, riding his bike, those people do not love God. They are not honoring God. The Lord is not pleased, you know? <laughs> and it was pretty hardcore, right? 
And we ride a little farther and there's like a nice manicured yard and just around their little porch lights, they had these little skeletons, you know. Oh my goodness, these people are going to hell for sure, you know. And we use it as an opportunity to speak truth, you know, to speak truth to it. And, uh, you know, not all skulls are bad. Jesus was crucified at the place of the skull, right? He's going to turn our dry bones into moving bones that grow and stuff. So, you know, there can be times when you could use a skull as a great and awesome witnessing opportunity. Is it glorifying God, the decorations that you have up? Or is it quite obvious that you're croaching over into the occultic side of this holiday? All right. And you're kind of telling the community, yes, we're eating the meat offered to idols. Got the blood all over my face. Here I am in the temple. Oh, you know, and we, and we see it, okay? And also, closing, is it something that is missional? You can celebrate Halloween to the glory of God. You're not celebrating Halloween, but you're missional in Halloween. You're missional in it. You're about... The harvest is plentiful. Open your doors. There's a billion people outside coming up to my doorstep. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Are you being missional with it? I want to just close with this quick paragraph from a blog. It says, what if we saw October 31st not merely as an occasion for asking self-oriented question about our participation, whether we should or shouldn't dress the kids up, or carve pumpkins, or go trick-or-treating. But what if we used it for pursuing others-oriented acts of love? What if we capitalized on the opportunity to take a step forward in an ongoing process of witnessing to our neighbors, co-workers, and extended families about who Jesus is and what he accomplished at Calvary for the wicked like us? What if we resolved not to join the darkness by keeping our porch lights off, What if we didn't deadbolt our doors, but handed out the best treats in the neighborhood as a faint echo of the kind of grace our Father extends to us sinners? Let's be missional about this Halloween. Let's brainstorm with our core groups and our 242 groups about how we can reach the lost. Because in the community that God has put us in to share the gospel, this culture is going to be out and about. Let's contextualize the gospel. One writer said, Let's leave a flaming sack on Satan's doorstep this Halloween. All right? I like that. Sorry. Okay. Another study for another time, maybe next week. Let's pray. We're going to partake of the communion table now. We're going to have the ushers come forward today and pass it out. And I would just encourage you to hold on to the elements today. And during this song, let's just hold and let's feel and let's ponder and let's think of how the bread represents the broken body of Jesus, how he was stripped and whipped and wounded and bruised for our sins. And let's take that cup and ponder how his blood was spilt and was shed so that it might atone for our sins, paying for the sins and satisfying the wrath of God that was against us. And before we even get close to putting those elements in our mouth, Let's be aware of the very real, very serious unity that is taking place with Jesus. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.